When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host of the channel, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Julie Dillamuth about her work writing picture books for children based on her knowledge gained getting her PhD. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here and that we get to talk about from picture book, uh, from PhD to picture book. I think this is such an important topic and it's incredibly difficult to break complex things down into simple language. And the fact that you can do that is very exciting. But before we dive into that, I wonder if you'll please tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, I have a PhD in geography with an emphasis in cognitive science. And um, I'm, I write picture books. I've also started writing screenplays, feature screenplays for an adult audience um, for over the past couple of years. And um, I have two kids. My other creative um, passions are sewing and crochet. So I find that kind of like a more tactile kind of creativity balances the more intellectual creativity. And um, I live in Santa Barbara, California. Thank you for that introduction. I wonder if you could take us back to when you were an undergrad. How did you plan where you wanted to go? And back when you were planning that, did you foresee where you would end up now? No, not at all. Um, so I was an undergrad at Yale and um, loved it. It was just, I had the best time. I was an archaeological studies major, and which is a very um, interdisciplinary major. And um, by the end of college, though, I was a little bit, um, I don't know if disillusioned is the right word, but I, what kind of bothered me about archaeology is that, you know, you could have a set of artifacts and I could have one interpretation, you could have a different interpretation, and then we would never really know who was right, ultimately. Um, and I was interested in things like where people, like landscapes and where people chose to live in the environment. Um, I was using satellite imagery to do analyses. And so in thinking about grad school, I kind of thought, well, you know, I could study similar things like where people like to live and what people do in the environment, but I could bring it into the present day and that's geography, right? So geography is people and the environment, the earth interacting. And that was um, always really interesting to me. 
Um, I did. I took five years between undergrad and grad school because I um, was ready for a break. I actually couldn't see myself in grad school right away. Um, I was very shy then. Like, I mean, I still kind of am, I guess. But um, at that point, just like the idea of being a TA or, you know, even speaking in class was a real challenge. And so, um, and just kind of being burnt out from so much school, you know, it's like when school's all you've ever really known, you want to break. So um, I took five years in between, but then I, I really missed academia and just ideas and learning. And so I was happy to go back and I went back for geography. So I have to ask, did you go on any archaeological digs? Can you give us an Indiana Jones moment? <laughs> oh, I can. Um, I was lucky enough to do two different digs even before college, and that's kind of what sparked my interest in archaeology. They were through Earthwatch um, organization. So one was in Arizona, um, and I was I turned sixteen on that one, and on my birth, and we were digging. So it was. Um, the site was called Hamalavi. It was um, a Native American site, and we were excavating a kiva, which is like a meeting room, and there ended up being three skeletons in there, human skeletons, and that was totally unexpected. The um, PIs were investigating different um, cultures coming together around the Colo little Colorado River um, during drought, and so like what, you know, the did the drought exacerbate, you know, sort of um, like any kind of warfare or just conflict, I guess is the term. Um, and so that was, so on my birthday, I'm like, you know, uncovering this skeleton, which was really quite a powerful experience. Um, and, and then I did a dig in England um, in a, it was a Roman fort off of Hadrian's Wall and that was just just so far back in time. And, you know, being a teenager from Southern California where the, everything just kind of feels really modern, it was really, um, it really made an impression and wanted, you know, made me want to learn more and follow that. And then in, um, and then in, in college, I, we did a, we had our field site in Connecticut. It was Eli Whitney's Armory. So after he invented the cotton gin, he messed up the whole patent thing and didn't really make any money from that. So he moved to Connecticut and opened a gun factory and uh, is credited with the first uh, sort of assembly line manufacturing process. But he was also one of the first um, to, like he built a, a little village for his workers across from the factory. And that's where we were excavating. Those are great stories. There's so much there we can unpack about the who's right it is to dig things up and uh, all the powerful things that that evokes and the complexities of where things actually belong once you find them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but you left that field behind for a lot of reasons and you went into geography and particularly you're interested in um, spatial representation and spatial thinking for people like me who can get lost in the town they grew up in. Can you help us understand what uh, spatial thinking is and why some of us have a real deficit there? Yes. And I, and there's different types of spatial thinking. So um, I also have a deficit in sense of direction. Um, but for example, my spatial memory is fantastic. So um, so spatial thinking just kind of really broadly is how we think about the world around us, 
um, how we use concepts of space for problem solving. And so it's, you know, it's a range of things. Um, I like to kind of to break it down into maybe five different categories. So um, sense of direction, as we mentioned, right, like getting around, finding your way, um, spatial representations, which would be maps or diagrams. Um, that's really important in STEM fields, right? Um, all kinds of different representations where the spatial relationships matter. And so spatial relationships among objects, um, that's another area of spatial thinking, um, understanding how things relate to each other in space. Um, so, you know, when you're packing a backpack, you need to get everything to fit, right? So you're, you move things around so that they fit. So you're dealing with those relationships. Um, spatial memory is remembering where things are. So your keys, your phone, even like, you know, where your books are on the bookshelf. Um, and this spatial memory is sort of my, my superpower. I'm the finder of my family. So if anyone can't find something, I don't know, I just, I notice where things are and then I remember that and I don't even try. It just happens. Like any book on my bookshelf, I can just go right to it and pick it out. Um, and, and then spatial language is another one. So, you know, positional language. So talking about above, under, between, through, and also how we use those words as metaphors, right? Like, um, I'm on top of the world. So that's kind of like what I mean by spatial thinking. And I kind of forgot what the rest of your question. Was that the question? <laughs> that was the question. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the things that you look at is spatial representation, things like maps, diagrams, and charts. And I'm curious, is that the part of spatial thinking that's hardest for people? I know it's what's hardest for me. Am I, am I um, unique in stumbling there the worst? Or is that where people have the most common problem? Um, you're not unique for sure. Um, in in having that as kind of your most challenging area of spatial thinking. Um, there's a whole range, of course, right across the population. And um, But I think because spatial representations can be very abstract um, and they're two-dimensional representations of a three-dimensional world, that's why they're, they can be so challenging. Um, and so, yeah, so my, so maps, uh, I've always been interested in maps. Um, and in my, my dissertation research was about using maps on small displays. And this is even before smartphones. Um, it was, I don't know if you remember, like you would have a standalone GPS, like a device that was just a GPS that kind of looked like a phone. Um, so that was back in the day. And so there were maps made for these that weren't really designed for the devices. They were just maps, like, you know, the image that would be shrunk down. And, you know, there was some, you know, the software would take things on and off and change scale and things. And so I was looking at how people just like how you deal with having to scroll across a map instead of being able to see it all out in front of you. Right. Because the, the real power of a, a, a paper map is that you can unfold this thing it's big, but it's, you know, it's the whole, it's a whole space that's in front of you in your hands versus looking out into the environment around you where you can't really see so far, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I, that was sort of my interest in grad school. And then I got into writing, I don't know, do you want me to talk about how I got into writing for kids? 
That's we will great. in a minute. Okay. But first, I want to know how you got good at using maps. Were, were maps something that someone taught you how to use? Were they something that you learned how to make? Because there's a, so, my experience has been that people just assume at some point you just magically learn how to use a map. It's like a part of your brain that just turns on. And one of the things that we'll get into with your books is they actually teach people how to understand maps, which is part of why I'm so thrilled that you're doing this. We don't have to raise another generation like me who's like, I don't know what this says. Um, so how did you learn how to use maps? How did you learn how to make maps? Um, I So I got better in grad school because I have always had a terrible sense of direction Um and when I say like I always liked maps, it was kind of like maps as almost like as art versus maps as navigation tools. So I wasn't the, like my sister was the one on the family trips who would like have the atlas and follow along where we were going. And I just kind of it was like a bunch of lines and I didn't really get it so much. Um, and and so that's actually part of the reason why I studied maps in grad school, because I was so terrible with them. Um, and my sense of direction was so bad that at one point it got to be where like I would be driving and I would feel like I should turn right and then I would turn left and left would be the correct way. Like I would go opposite of my, <laughs> my gut feeling. Um, it was that bad. And so that, you know, I was like, why is, why do I have such a hard time keeping my sense of direction and using a map and navigating? Well, it was a two part question and I should learn not to ask those. Um, it was, uh, how did you, the second part of the question was, how did you learn how to make them or did you? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So that's actually interesting because um, I got into in, – in senior year of college, I did my, like, senior thesis um, that involved mapping locations of sites around a lake. And um, so I was using GIS. And so that, like, I was making maps digitally um, based on, like, real-world coordinates – and so that kind of got me into map making in that way. And then um, and then in grad school, I, I was interested in child development just kind of as a aside, like how kids learn different spatial thinking skills at what points. You know, we all have this um, developmental trajectory where we kind of come in with the, the more abstract thinking as we grow. And, um, and so I learned that... Um, that where was I going with this? <laughs> There's like three different directions I could go with this, and I was like, which one did I want to do? Um, so, what we what we used to think, kind of just generally, is that it wasn't clear whether you could improve your spatial thinking skills. Right? It's like you were either like born with a set of skills or you were exposed at a young age to maps or whatever. And that's kind of like set you up for the rest of your life. And then um, like 10, about 10 to 15 years ago, research came out that showed that you could actually improve your, you could learn these skills and improve them with practice and training. Um, and so that was kind of like a, a big revelation um, to me and also I think to the field. Um, and so, and I found in my own experience, I, you know, I, I did a lot of traveling in uh, grad school. I kind of went to every conference I could just because I really liked to travel. And so I'd get into these new cities and have to figure out where I was going and I was on my own. So it was up to me. Um, and the more I did it, the easier it got and the more confident I got. 
Um, and that kind of really showed me something, you know, like this is possible. Um, and then also in my, in the course of my research, just learning about different strategies, right? So when you're navigating somewhere, you can turn around and look behind you and see what things look like from that perspective, because when you return on that same route, you know, then it'll look more familiar than if you're just uh, going straight ahead in the one direction. Um, and or strategies like finding the sun and helping orient to the cardinal directions. Um, so there's, so different things kind of came up that I could use to help myself. Um, and I think that that kind of inspired me also then to want to share that. It sounds like you come at this field with a great sense of empathy because you're not someone who had an easy time with this. And often people who didn't have an easy time with something and had to learn it become better teachers of it. It's pretty hard to tell someone how to do something that just comes naturally to you. you those are the people who say, I don't know, just do it. Right, right. I love that they changed the thinking from you either are able to do this or you aren't. Do you think the studies in neuroplasticity helped inform the idea that people could develop skills that in the past were thought to either be innate or not? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I mean, there, there are so much that we're learning about the brain now, right, um, or recently. And um, I think it's really exciting because yeah, back when I was starting grad school and starting to learn about this, it was, you know, like what's, you, you do these spatial thinking tests on your human subjects and, you know, there's, there's a range of findings and, um, but it wasn't like, yeah, it, it wasn't sort of a thing to just sort of assume, oh, you know, well, with training and practice that could, that could get better. Um, and so it's, you know, I think it's, it's, a, and I get a lot of people, you know, with my books, like parents who are like, oh, I need this too. And it's like, yes, you know, it, you can always, there's always room for practicing your spatial thinking skills and just kind of being more aware of your environment and what's going on and where you're going. And, you know, I think also when we get so tuned into our screens, um, you know, we kind of forget to look around and notice things or like think about where we're going. Or, or, you know, or you just re kind of rely on your, your apps to get you around until your phone is out of reception or dies or you, you forget it at home and then you're kind of stuck and then you realize, oh, I actually haven't really been paying enough attention um, and developing my own navigation skills. I like the point that you made that um, parents and caregivers have the opportunity to learn uh, along with uh, their, their child or student as they're sharing these books. And in every book you include uh, what's called a note to parents, caregivers, and professionals. So that if you don't have uh, an intuitive understanding of these books yourself, you don't have to worry. You can find these um, supplemental materials to help unpack it for um, the student or child that you're helping. And you can help yourself learn it at the same time. It reminds me of um, parents or caregivers who sign themselves up for adult swim lessons at the time they sign the child up for swim lessons. It's like, we're both going to learn this together and we're, we're going to go forward together. And the books really have that um, in them. They're, they're written for the child, but there's so much material for the adults that the adults can have a learning experience as well. So let's dive into what got you from um, PhD to picture book. Um, was it something that had been in your mind for a long time? When did the light bulb go off? Like, I could do this for children. I could translate for kids the books that I never had, so they don't have to be wandering around lost. Um, so that moment came um, in 
December of 2009. <laughs> I can be very specific. <laughs> but leading up to that was um, a little bit longer. So I'd always wanted to write since probably being a teenager. Um, and I was always kind of a frustrated writer. I thought I wanted to write novels and screenplays, and I would not get very far at all. I write like little vignettes or scenes, but um, I just like I wouldn't even call myself a writer like as a hobby. It was just something like I kind of felt was in me, but I didn't know how to to express it or get it out or you know write something from beginning to end. And then um, it was about a year after I'd finished my PhD. And um, I, I still, like I was working on campus, I was working as an education director at a research center, an NSF research center on campus. And um, so I still was like, you know, going to talks and things like that. Um, and it, it was at that time when I, I kind of learned more about this idea that, you know, we can teach and train spatial thinking skills. Um, and I, there was also a study that came out that it was really impressive that they um, they tracked 400,000 kids from high school and for like over 11 years to look at, you know, kind of like their characteristics and then what where they went in their careers. And the findings from that showed that with spatial thinking skills, spatial ability, I guess it was called spatial thinking skills, those who had strong skills tended to go into STEM fields and those without strong spatial skills did not. Um, and so there was a real, it was a pretty strong like evidence that spatial skills really impact whether a person pursues a STEM field or not. And that was at the time when it, there was a lot of push, you know, we need more kids going into science and technology and engineering and math. Um, and so I was you know, thinking how, I don't know, thinking how books, you know, kids really, they learn, they use books to learn, but at the same time, they're fun. So books can be educational, kind of like without being didactic. And, um, and some other studies I was reading showed that there was really a big variation in what kids were getting exposed to from parents and teachers in terms of spatial stuff. So spatial language, you know, like researchers looked at spatial language, like how often a teacher would use it in the classroom um, or like, like have studies where parents would come in with kids and they would have like a Lego set and they um, they recorded the parents working with the kids and like how many times they used positional language, right? Like, oh, let's try putting that on top or underneath or with this. Um, and there was a big variation in what kids were hearing. And so I got this idea, well, you know, if I wrote a picture book uh, that was full of spatial language, then parents would read it to the kids. And then so the parents would be saying it. And then, you know, you know how you, you have your favorite books and you read them over and over again, and then you kind of memorize them, because, especially if they're rhyming. And so I pictured, so the, my idea was the day in the life of a baby. And then and it was rhyming. And so the idea would be that, you know, going through daily life, parents could kind of like, you know, they would, these phrases from my book would pop into their head and then they could recite them to their kids and just kind of like layer on the spatial language and, and have them hear more. And, um, so that I had this idea and I wrote it down and it was just so fun just to write it and to do the rhymes. Um, and then about probably three or four months later, I, I was, ready for something new. 
um, I was kind of burning out um, of my job a little bit. And I was actually on sabbatical uh, with my husband and we were in a different time zone and I was working remotely. And this is, you know, before working remotely was a thing. So it was very difficult and I was really frustrated and I was like, I just want to write, you know, picture books. And I was like, you know, well, maybe I could, maybe I, maybe this is something I want to get serious about. And writing this picture book, it was the first time I'd written a book that had a beginning, a middle and end. And that was exciting because it's like, you know, this, like I, I wrote a book and it felt really good and it was really fun. And so I decided to get serious about a writing career and I joined SCBWI, which is the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is the professional society for anyone interested in writing for kids or who writes for kids. Um, and cause that's full of resources. And so I joined that and I'm like, I'm going to do this and, you know, see if I like it. So that's, that's how it all started. And the original book, the, the rhyming one for babies, did not get published. But something like 82 rejections later, yes. you found success? <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I wrote a bunch of stories. Not all of them were spatial even. Um, I just like the more I learned, how, you know, about the craft of writing for kids, the more I just got, I enjoyed it and I got more and more ideas. Um, and... So that original story kind of morphed into mapping my day. So at the time, you know, I was brand new to writing and I thought this day in the life of a baby was just with rhymes was just like, so like the best idea. And then finally it was an agent who got back to me with some feedback very kindly and said like, you know, you need to find a way to make this fresh. This, and I was like, wait, this idea is not new. <laughs> and I did some research. I'm like, oh, day in the life of a baby is a kind of a, there's a lot of books like that. So, you know, I learned that I did have to kind of make myself unique and put a new spin on things. Um, and so what happened is for this, that particular story, I did do a day in the life, but I made the character older. So she's more like eight or nine. And in mapping my day, what she should, it is a day in the life. So it goes through her day, but everything that happens, she t uh, tells us that story with a map. So she draws a map to kind of tell us about her life. It's like a, an atlas of her life almost. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy with how that came out. I still have, you know, my old manuscript on my computer as the, the one that started it all. But, you know, there are a lot of, I, I think I've heard something like, for every 10 ideas you have for a book or a story, maybe one of them is going to be really viable. So you just have to keep writing and and not everyone is going to make it, but some of them are seeds for other stories or, you know, things like that. We've done a couple episodes specifically on rejection because it's the topic nobody wants to talk about, but it's something that is so important to talk about. Um, and one of the things I learned in one of the episodes uh the guest research had shown that rejection can make some people more creative. And it sounds like that's what happened with you. You got rejection and you had to see what you could make out of what you had left because the way you were going to go wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as the I started querying pretty early on um, and then, you know, as I got into learning more and taking more classes on how to write for kids, I realized, oh, I'm actually like these stories, like I know why they got rejected. Um, so part of it was that learning curve. And, but also, I mean, I think I was really tenacious and, you know, like you, you have a critique group and you get feedback and you find out what's not working and then you revise it and you change it. 
and then you try again. So I was I was determined to get published, and I figured, you know, if I figure out if I like research the industry and how how it works, like how the publishing process works, and then if I you know just keep trying to make my stories better and better, um, and just keep at it, and I. The, I, I was determined to get to at least 100 rejections before giving up. And that's because I went to a workshop with Lisa Wheeler. And she has a, she has a ton of picture books. And they're all rhyming. And they're fantastic. And she had over 100 rejections before making her first picture book sale. And when I heard that and like seeing how prolific and successful she was, I was like, well, if she can last through 100 rejections, so can I. And then that was my goal. Um, and I only made it to 82, luckily. And um, so that was with a bunch of different stories. Lucy in the City was the first picture book that I sold to Imagination Press. And that had 15 rejections, I think, um, if I remember correctly. And then in between there, I mean, I should say I was also trying to write for magazines. And um, I submitted to the Highlights Fiction Contest, so the Highlights Magazine, and I won the Highlights Fiction Contest. That was a huge like vote of confidence, and which I, you know, I kind of needed in that, in all that time, just like, okay, I can do this, and I just have to stick with it. But the magazines were nice because you know, magazines always need content because they publish on a monthly basis or however, you know, whatever their publishing schedule is. But so they're always looking for content. They have subscribers. So the audience is built in and you can go to the, the websites and look up the themes for upcoming issues and you can submit um, proposals to write an article or a story. Um, and so that's, that was kind of a way I, I got a couple things published that way. And that was, you know, p- picture book was kind of like my, what I was really, that was the goal. But along the way, um, I was open to trying different formats and different genres and um, and I found that really useful and helpful and inspiring. So Lucy in the City is the first one that got published. Yes. It's not the first one that you ever wrote, but it's the first one that got published. That's right. And what inspired this book? Oh, this book. Um, well, the raccoons, um, I actually, they were inspired by the raccoons that lived on campus when I was in grad school at UC Santa Barbara. Um, you know, in the winter at night, when if you left your office after dark, you would see these raccoons like creeping around. And the campus was totally quiet and dark. And it was just such a contrast from the daytime when kids were swarming around students, I shouldn't say kids, um, students. And, you know, it was just such a, a difference. And I would always think like, what do they do at night? And like their, like the raccoons experience of campus was so different from humans experience of campus. And that some like really fascinated me. Um, and so I originally conceived of a different story with raccoons, but it kind of evolved into the story about Lucy, this raccoon who gets separated from her family uh, one night and has to figure out how to get herself back home when she's never really paid attention to her environment before because she is the youngest and she just follows along behind her brother's tail. And, you know, a lot like kids who are in the backseat of the car, they just kind of go along with where they get driven and without really having a say or a choice. And then they're, you know, probably not very motivated to pay attention. Um, And so that was Lucy's situation until she was kind of forced to pay attention when she was on her own. Because she got lost. Yeah. And you also wrote uh, an article for Odyssey on the theme of getting lost. So you've pursued your 
your interest both in what we might think of as more uh, traditional academic forms, conferences and papers, and writing for adult audiences and still pursuing it for children. Do you see um, an overlap in how you explain the concepts? Once you break something down into the, the simplest um, terms to make it understandable, do you start to not want to go back to the jargony way that sometimes academics talk to each other? Um, that's interesting, you know, and I haven't really been around since I'm really focused on my writing for, gosh, it's, this is my 12th year. Um, you know, I kind of am out of the academic loop and I, I wonder if I could drop back into all the jargon and things again. Um, I, it's fun to talk to various audiences, right? Because like different ages, because everyone kind of has their own perspective and where they are. And, um, I mean, when I talk to kids, like they're interested in the animals in my stories. And then when I talk to adults, they're, they're interested in mostly sense of direction, right? Because it comes up either someone either is or knows someone who can just drop down in a new city and know exactly where they are and just get around, or it's the, the opposite. And so we talk about these things. Um, and, and it's fun to kind of to suggest strategies and, or even like different perspectives, right? Like some people have this, um, like an egocentric way of being in the world, right? Where it's like they're, they want to talk about right and left turns, whereas other people have an allocentric view, which is more cardinal direction based. So they, they are more comfortable talking about like East West kinds of things. Um, and so like, there's a lot of interesting things that, that people, you know, like, uh, you know, that you're just talking to, um, find interesting that come out of academia that, and I, you know, it's kind of, I know a lot of academics do sort of outreach and, um, and writing, whether it's speaking or writing, just to kind of bring some of these ideas out into more of the general public, because there's, there's a lot of fun and interesting things happening that we learn about through research that don't, doesn't really get translated into kind of general, general knowledge so often. So one thing that comes up in your stories again and again is the importance of family or community. Um, in the Camilla Cartographer books, she's really um, concerned about her community. And can you talk about um, how you developed those books? So, um, yeah, and I have, there's two Camilla books at this point, and hopefully there will be at least a couple of more. Um, so Camilla is a wild boar who lives in a forest um, that happens to be in Italy. And um, so the, again, like, I don't know why I like nocturnal animals. <laughs> and wild boars, they do come out in the morning and the evening. So these, her, like, her books are set during the day. Um, but I did kind of find it funny that I was like, I'm always fascinated with these nighttime animals because the wild boar, um, my husband's from Berlin. And so when we're there, you could like these wild boars come out during the night and they just uproot parks and backyards and they just make these massive like trenches and you never see them, but you see the evidence of them and the sort of destructive, it's, it's destructive, but for them, it's like they're just doing their thing looking for food. Um, and so again, I was sort of fascinated with the, the uh, wild boar, um, and I don't really know how it made its way into my story, but I guess I, you know, I hadn't really had seen a story with a wild boar before, and why not? So Camila 
she loves maps. She has a map collection and um, like maps are her thing. And so, um, yeah, just like this little forest community and she has various adventures that are all outside because it's important to me to inspire readers to get outside and explore and, um, you know, involve maps in some way, whether it's drawing them themselves or using them. Um, and that's why I like to put a lot of activities in the back of the book so that kids and parents have a jumping off point where they can um, explore with maps similar in ways similar to Camila, but in their own backyard or neighborhood. And she has a friend who goes on her adventures with her and her concerns usually involve her larger community. There's a sense of empathy in these books and a sense that it's important to rely on others and that you can use your own skills to help people. Can you talk about sort of the social emotional component that uh, is running through the books as well as the spatial component? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's social emotional development is a big area. And I, I find like in my, my kids are in elementary school and there's a, um, there's been a kind of a, a bigger emphasis now maybe than before. I guess I can't speak to before because my kids were in school before, but, um, like there seems to be a, like they're bringing in more programs now to, to help, um, encourage social emotional development in kids. Um, and so it's, again, you know, going back to books as they're not only entertaining, but they, you know, they promote certain values or a teaching or learn, you know, um, opportunities for learning. And so I think having an example where, you know, Camila and her sidekick Parsley, who's a porcupine, work together, um, you know, Parsley's asking for help and Camila is ready to jump in. And then they end up having a lot of fun together. And then with the, the new book, the new releases, Camila and the Big Change, and beavers come to the forest. And at first, Camila is like beaver, like they chop down trees, like they're going to destroy everything. And then she learns how the beavers actually are very beneficial to an environment. Um, and so, yeah, so kind of just seeing examples of these interactions and um, exploring together, learning new things together. Um, I think that's it, a good example to set. Um, and I like the idea of promoting positive, you know, a lot of positive values in my book. So, I mean, spatial thinking is kind of my modus operandi. Like that's my main goal is to have books that encourage kids to um, think about spatial relationships and draw, draw pictures where spatial relationships matter. So maps or just other drawings where space matters. Um, but any, you know, any additional themes I can get in there. Change is another theme that's in these books. So there's always sort of an aspect of change. Um, in the first, in Camila Cartographer, it's about how once the snowy landscape melts, like that's going to change. And um, after she's drawn all these new, like she's forged these new paths and drawn new maps, but then that's all going to melt and go away. And then with Camila and the big change, it's um, the changing of the creek into a pond. And that book is really more about the emotions that we go through. And I wrote this during the pandemic. Um, 2020, a, a lot of writers I talked to, we all kind of shut down in the beginning and just like could not be creative. Um, and then it was the summer of 2020. 
and just you know going through change after change and with all the different things and it's these emotions of like shock and then denial and anger and sadness and then you start to come around to like acceptance and um and then like how you can kind of integrate it the change into your life and and move forward and so doing that over and over again i wrote this story as kind of a cathartic way for me to to deal with all of these you know change after change and so camila goes through all these emotions um and the context of the beavers coming and changing her forest. And so I'm hoping that readers can relate um, to all of those emotions and kind of think about their experience. One of the things I liked about um, Camila and the big change particularly was her internal journey. She starts off with one very definite way of seeing it, but because she goes through the internal journey and there's time for her to do it, she's able to change her thinking and change her mind about how she feels about this. And one of the spreads that I really liked was it said she went to bed mad. And I liked how much space the story allowed for her to be mad because in children's books, kids are often sort of jollied out of their feelings very quickly. And in these books, we see a gradual progression of her feelings, which is more in keeping with the human experience. And we can hold more than one feeling at a time. And between Camilla and Parsley often having different feelings at the same time, the the actual page spread makes space for the idea that there's two feelings at the same time and they, they both can be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's really important for all of us to, you know, to acknowledge our feelings, whatever they are, and allow space for them and realize that they're, they can change over time. They will change over time. Um, and I, you know, I, I got into like meditation, like mindfulness meditation and things like that, where, you know, your feelings aren't your identity. Um, and, you know, acknowledging feelings, being aware of your emotions helps you kind of move through them. And so, and I, and I know that, you know, not even just during the pandemic, but anytime, and you know, my kids tend to be pretty sensitive. Like if there's a substitute teacher one day, like that will throw off one of my girls. Um, and as she just gets really upset at that, like it's a, for, from a adult perspective, it's a pretty minor change. Like you have a new teacher for a day, but for her, it's like a big thing. Um, and so, having a book like this where kids can see a character going through these different emotions, they can relate and they can see that she comes out on the other side, um, you know, having kind of worked through them. And then in the, in the note, one of the suggestions is like, you know, you can talk with your kids about a change that they struggled with and, you know, kind of walk through like, how did you feel and how did that change over time? And, and then, cause you know, we all face change throughout our lives and it's, you know, if you kind of realize that you can, it's okay to have all the different emotions. Um, you know, I think that's going to help us uh, cope. And it seems through the books that because there's space for dealing with the feelings, then there's also an opening up of the ability to think through the problem differently and come up with a different um, solution and a different opinion about what to do or how you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, know, I don't but, think she would have made friends with the beavers if she hadn't gone on the emotional journey. I think we would have ended up with her tolerating them or maybe not liking them ever. Yeah. Yeah. And at one point, Parsi is like, because in the beginning of the book, Camilla's like, I love the change of seasons. 
Um, and then so after Camille's all upset about this change with the beavers, Parsley's like, well, you like change. You said so, you know, about the change of seasons. And then, you know, so it's like, why are you upset? And then they realize, you know, when even Camilla, when she knows it's going to be a good thing and Parsley asks her like, you know, if you know it's a good thing, why are you so upset? And she's like, I don't know. So this idea that, you know, we don't always have a rational explanation for our emotions um, and that's okay, you know. Imagination, Imagination Press is part of the American Psychological Association. Yes. There aren't a lot of professional associations that specifically have a publishing arm aimed at children. Mm-hmm. How did you find them or how did they find you? Um, so that's kind of interesting because um, I I didn't think that I would be a good fit for them um, because so they're now, I mean, they have, their list is just growing and growing um, and they have things like mindfulness and I mean, they're anything to do with like cognition, right? Cause they're psycho- you know, psychology, but earlier when they initially started out, they focused more on things like clinical issues right? like diagnoses, whether it was like ADHD or, or even things like coping with divorce or death in the family. And then, um, so they've been kind of expanding their list into different areas. So this was, um, you know, like nine, 10 years ago, probably I, I looked at, at their list and I was like, Oh, I don't really fit in with the books that they've already published. And then I, I had a, went to a talk on campus, um, by Nora Newcomb from Temple and she, who's, you know, talks about, um, kind of what I was talking about earlier with these studies of, of um, like child development and how we can teach and train spatial thinking skills and um, and how important they are for going into STEM careers. And so I was telling her about my books and my ideas, and she said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm right doing a book in the academic side with the APA, and so I know that they have a children's publishing division. Uh, let me see if I can find out, you know, who we would contact." I was like, okay, thanks. And then I went home and I Googled. Um, I was like, oh yeah, I've been here before. And I'm like, I really don't think I'm a good fit because I don't, you know, my books aren't about clinical issues. And But in the meantime, she emailed her editor and, you know, said, who does the children's and would they be interested in books about spatial cognition? And then that editor replied and CC'd the children's editor. And that editor was like, yeah, that sounds great. Send it over. And so I was like, okay. And, the, and then that was that. And she, the um, acquisitions editor loved the, my idea with spatial thinking skills. And, um, and then I was like, well, that's, you know, how was I so off in like not recognizing that they would want, be interested in this, in this kind of story. And then I went to their mission statement and I read the mission statement and I was like, oh, now it totally makes sense. So that was kind of a less, I mean, they tell you in, you know, when you're researching publishers, look at the list and see if your book fits with that list. But I learned that you also want to look at the mission statement, you know, kind of step back and look a little bit more broadly because you may have a book that's not yet on their list that they would want. And you like, so, you know, in that case, I kind of like shut myself out without even trying because I assumed that they wouldn't want it, but when I looked at the mission statement, I saw that my books actually fit right in. So that was kind of a good lesson. And yeah, they've been really encouraged, like enthusiastic about the spatial thinking and 
um, which I'm really happy about because they, you know, they recognize the value and there really aren't a lot of books out there, picture books that address spatial thinking. Um, there are some books about maps, um, kind of like how-to books about maps, um, which are great. And, you know, m- mapping is part of the second grade curriculum, at least here in California. And so it's, you know, it's great that there are books like that, but I think there could be more about just, you know, spatial thinking skills more broadly or problem solving. And I'm all, you know, into about storytelling with maps and problem solving with maps, which is a dimension that I think is unique to my books. One of the things that you touched on earlier was that you, you went to a lot of places as a grad student because you like to travel and it was you setting out by yourself. And if you had to figure out where to go, it was all on you. And I've had had that in grad school as well on my research trips and my grants and fellowships. It barely was enough money for me to send myself, let alone bring a friend. And so I, I just had to tell myself, you're going to get lost a lot, but you've never ended up stuck anywhere. <laughs> so you will, you will figure it out. Um, but it wasn't the most comforting way to get through it. It was just the reality. Like somehow, even if you get lost, you will, you will figure it out. Um, these books and the new uh, emphasis on making sure kids have these skills, it seems like it would inspire even more confidence that you definitely will be able to figure out how to get wherever you need to go. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I hope so. And I, you know, from Lucy in the City, I got a lot of parent feedback on that because it came out when um, my older daughter was in, was kind of the, the right, it was, she was in preschool. So um, kind of the, the right age for the group. My books are aimed at ages four to eight. Um, that's kind of a, a general frame. It's, you know, there's preschoolers like them and older kids like them too. But um, at the time when Lucy in the City came out, my my daughter was kind of in the prime age. And so my mom's group was, you know, really supportive um, and got my book, which is really wonderful. And, but they would report back to me like, oh, you know, we'll be driving in the car. And my son will say, wait, what, what direction are we going now? Where's North? And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was hoping for with my books, right? That, that um, it would inspire kids to tune in to their own environments and like kind of, you know, transfer what, they saw the characters going through with what they could relate to in their own lives. Um, and, you know, in Lucy in the City, you get so that Owl helps her out um, in terms of giving her just some directions. And so you have an, a literal bird's eye view, right, which is like, so it's like a gentle introduction to a map because you see the city from above and the streets. And um, I have a little compass rose on the page where the illustrator, you know, put it in. And my illustrator is Laura Wood, who does beautiful art. And I, just, I love her colors, especially. But um, so there's like, you can follow, there's like a dotted line that goes from where Lucy is to her next destination. And kids love following that. And you know, the owl will say like, one block east and three blocks north. And so you can follow along on the streets on like this map view um, and that's just like, readers find that so much fun. And so I really, it's, it's great to see that, um, and to see the response and to see that it is making a difference. Um, so that's, that's been really encouraging. What surprised you the most in writing books for kids? Um, Ooh, I don't know. That's something I haven't thought about before. Maybe how much fun it is. 
Um, and maybe like just how, like I'm so much more creative now than I was. I've, you know, I've always been very analytical, which kind of comes with the territory of grad school. And, um, but now, you know, like it's been over a decade that I've been focusing on writing and I feel like I'm much more creative. Like that's kind of my go-to now more than the analytical. And that shift has been surprising because I didn't really realize that that would happen or could happen or that that was like a thing. Like, yeah. But, um, and I also have learned just kind of learn more about creativity and like creativity begets creativity, right? So if I'm creative in, like I mentioned my sewing and crochet, like if I'm creative there, that kind of feeds back into the writing um, and and different things. And that, that surprised me because I didn't really expect that. What's the biggest misconception people have about children's book writing? Maybe that it's easy. <laughs> um, and it's, I mean, it's, I don't want to discourage anyone because I know that there's, I've met a lot of people and a lot of grad students, especially who really, you know, who want to share the cool stuff that they're learning and researching and discovering to share that with a broader audience. And that's wonderful. And I really encourage that. Um, But I think, I mean, even like I had this naive notion that I would start writing. I said, I told myself, I'm going to give myself a year to get my, you know, to get a book published and then I'll quit my job and be a writer. And then I quickly realized that that doesn't happen that fast. Um, And so I think kind of the reality check of, yes, there's going to be rejections. And yes, there's going to be a lot, you know, a learning curve. And, you know, you have to stick with it. That that's something that I think you don't really realize until you get into it. Um, And so I say that, you know, I don't again, I don't want to discourage anyone. It's more of just a reality check of you know, be prepared. And, and if you go into it kind of knowing that, then you can, you know, you won't be blindsided by all the rejection or, you know, how long it takes or how much work you have to put in. Um, and it's fun. It's just, it's so fun. And, you know, there's, there's times when it's agonizing and frustrating, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's a passion and, the rewards when you, you know, can see someone read your story or like in a magazine, knowing that all of the readership is going to read your, your work. And that that's, that's really rewarding. And that makes it, you know, that kind of helps motivate to stick with it. I don't know what your committee told you about your dissertation, but, but mine, uh, found it quite normal that mine was over 600 pages long. When you write, when you write a picture book, they, start getting antsy when you go over a thousand words. Did you find it difficult to go from such a long medium, um, writing conference papers, writing a dissertation, writing a thesis as an undergrad to this very short form where every word really counts. And the most important thing you can do is make something really complicated into something very simple and digestible. Uh, Yes and no. Um, So, what I like about what I think what worked for me with picture books, because I mentioned that I really, for a long time, I, I couldn't write anything complete. Um, and that was when I was like, you know, thinking about novels with subplots and all the characters. So with picture books, it's very like encapsulated, right? There's one plot thread, there's a small set of characters, 
and you can get from the beginning to the end, like in a, you know, relatively short amount of time and space. And so that really clicked with me. And then I've always been interested in poetry and, you know, and words. I love words. And so the idea that every word matters and word choice is so important, that also really appealed to me. Um, and so I think it's definitely a challenge to whittle it down. And when I start writing, I just kind of write, I have, I, you know, have in mind that I want to keep it to, to target the 500 word sweet spot, but I just kind of write out the story and see what happens and then go back and edit it down. And cause you know, when you're ultimately the pictures tell half of the story in a picture book. And so, but when I write it, I tend to kind of write what I'm seeing in my head and then I can go back and like take out, Oh, this is going to be in the illustrations. So I can delete that. Um, and, but that it's, I, I find it fun to do that kind of editing. And, um, so it's a, it's still a long process, but it's the longest part is probably in the revising more than getting out, you know, tens of thousands of words if it's a, a longer form and then I have since I wrote a middle grade novel um, that I haven't done anything with, but um, just the freedom of being able to write all the words was was pretty fun. And now I'm writing screenplays, and so those are like 90 to 100 pages, um, and that's also interesting because you you know you keep the action to a minimum of a description, and then there's the dialogue. Um, so it's also kind of a constrained form, but it's also a lot of words and a lot of story. And I'm finding it's, I'm more comfortable now with longer stories and more complex plots. Um, and that's been really fun to, to have this new area that I'm writing in and learning and having a new learning curve. But I do, I want to say, um, if I could add, just talking about dissertations, um, I kind of, I mean, when I finished my dissertation and I wasn't sick of writing, that was sort of like a, huh, you know, <laughs> maybe writing's my thing. And then my, one of my committee members who is, was sort of notoriously hard to please, he commented that my lit review was one, I forget his words, something like one of the most engaging, I forget the word he used, but the gist of it was like, like never before have I been so engaged when leading, reading a lit review chapter. <laughs> I was like, huh. So that was, you know, that like looking back, those were kind of clues that, you know, I maybe I am good at kind of distilling down and communicating the point that I want to make. And, um, you know, I think, to, and then with practice, more and more practice, I think that's um, something that I see as a strength now in me. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Uh, well, I hope that they are inspired to just, you know, I think even being aware of your spatial thinking starts to tune you into um, like practicing it more, right? Like we talked about. So like, you know, as you move through your day and re and listeners as they move through their days, like, you know, when you're, if you're driving, like where are you going to park? Like choosing your parking spot, right? There's decisions. How far is it from where you need to walk? And you know, where it's the sidewalk or different things. And so all of these little decisions that we tend not to think about, like we're all, we're using our spatial reasoning and um, spatial analysis and, and this, the sense of spatial relationships to make all these decisions that we don't think about. So, um, you know, I think it's fun to be more aware of that because we can all, you know, use practice and maybe not be so dependent on our phones for navigation 
all the time. Um, and then also for, I think there's a lot of people out there who do have an idea for a story, uh, whether it's for kids or a novel or whatever, and, you know, go for it. <laughs> As you know, if you, if you have this passion, um, you know, like, don't be afraid to take it seriously. And, um, you know, you do what you need to do to make it happen, whether it's taking a class or joining a writing group or learning more about the industry that you want to publish in. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunities, especially for people in academia who, you know, are learning or researching and discovering a lot of new knowledge and getting that out there to a broader audience, I think is really important and interesting to so many people. And so, um, you know, the more that happens, the better it's going to be for everyone. Dr. Julie Delamuth, thank you so much for being on the show today and taking us through your journey from PhD to picture books. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>